want you to invite you to open your Bible to the book of 1 Kings. The book of 1 Kings, we'll be looking in chapter 19, 1 Kings chapter 19. And today I want to uh, share with you a message that I have simply titled, Living in the Valley. Living in the Valley from 1 Kings chapter 19. Once you find your place there, let's pause for just a second. Let's pray and ask God to speak to us during this time as we look at His Word. Father, we invite you now to speak to our hearts. Lord, that you would continue to receive our worship We have worshiped you in song this morning, and Father, we pray that you would continue to receive our worship as we study your word. Father, that your Holy Spirit would use the sacred words of Scripture to help us understand the truths that today can change our lives. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I wonder if you were to use a word or phrase to describe 2020, what that word or phrase would be that could be said in church. (laughs) I looked this week to see how people were trying to summarize the year in just a word or two, and I came across some words that we don't need to use in church, but I also came across some that that we can. Words like unpredictable, words like cruel, Words like chaos, or someone used the word nightmare. Words like disaster, unexpected. One word I really liked, delete. I like that one. (laughs) But then several times I saw a word or a synonym of this word in one way or the other. Words like sad or depressing. Each crisis that we have seemed to weather during this unusual season of life has added an extra layer of stress to our lives, so much so that mental distress has always been an issue that the church has been silent about for the most part, regrettably. But even more so today, we see that mental stress and mental distress has become more prevalent during this season than many other seasons of recent memory, from football stars to former first ladies and everyone in between, people are spending time in the valleys of life, dealing with things like depression, dealing with Life in the valley is not new to our COVID culture, nor is it unique to any one generation. We are broken people who live in a broken world, and at times our brokenness will manifest itself in obvious ways. Let me offer you a disclaimer this morning that I believe is very important. I realize that the word depression is a loaded word. I acknowledge that it can apply to people in various stages of mental duress or distress, that we can be talking about someone who's very discouraged, or we can be talking about someone who has some some chemical clinical issues going on. My purpose today is not to diagnose all the different kinds of depression. I'm not that smart enough, nor am I qualified to do that, nor is my purpose today to 
to provide for you one simple solution that in 12 steps it can all get cured. I don't know that it is really that simple. However, my goal today is for us to open up Scripture to look at the Word of God and to see how God might speak to us today. Because when you look at the pages of Scripture, you see many examples of God-loving, God-fearing people who earnestly fought depression, whose mental health was not often in the place where it they wished it would have been. And one of those examples is a man by the name of Elijah. Now, before we look at our text, we need to understand that coming into 1 Kings chapter 19, Elijah was on the mountaintop. Elijah had just had a battle. There were some evil rulers in his day, a king by the name of Ahab and uh, his wife, the queen, whose name is Jezebel. I don't know anyone who's named Ahab or Jezebel today. I know some folks that we might want to call Jezebel or Ahab. I don't know anyone who has that name uh, honestly and earnestly. Uh, they're, they're not people that we want to mimic, but these are people whom Elijah had a confrontation with, and Elijah had a big battle, and Elijah won that battle. Elijah Elijah went up against hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of the false prophets of Baal. They called out to their gods. He called out to his God. His God, our God, sent fire down from heaven. It was a wonderful victory. If there was ever a time that Elijah should have been up on the mountaintop, it was at this time. He is expecting a revolution. He's expecting people to rally around their commitment to God. He's expecting, excuse me, that Ahab and Jezebel will either have to repent or they will be deposed from their throne. If there was ever a time for Elijah to be up on top of the mountain, it was when 1 Kings 18 ends. But instead, he finds himself in a valley of despair and despondency. I believe Elijah is at the lowest point that any person can get in their life, as we'll see in a second, wishing that his life was over. Look at how 1 Kings chapter 19 opens up. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword, that great victory. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. In other words, I'm going to kill you. There is no revolution. There is no rebellion. Jezebel has not repented, nor has she been deposed. She is still on the throne, giving orders for Elijah's death, and Elijah realizes he has to go back into hiding. Then, verse 3, he was afraid. And Elijah arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. And he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and he came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. 
Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my fathers. Elijah, no bones about it, Elijah is depressed. He wants to die. What he had hoped would happen has not happened. What he expected to happen has not happened. Have you been in that valley? You thought something would go a certain way, and life just hasn't gone the way you thought it would go. You had expectations about life. You're even a God fearing person, but those expectations have not been met. You're not alone in feeling that way, for Elijah felt that way. And verse 5 tells us that he lay down and slept under a broom tree, and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. And Elijah looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake. The story all of a sudden got better, didn't it? Amen. There's a cake, I doubt it had icing though, banked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave, and he lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? God says, Elijah, what are you doing here? Elijah said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Notice that God dealt with the totality of Elijah. God ministered to Elijah psychologically and emotionally. He listened to him. God ministered to Elijah spiritually. He, he dealt with uh, a misconception he had about God. And, and the, God ministered to Elijah physically. He sent the angel and said, look, you need to eat. You need to take a nap. And I can see that some of you have already applied the take a nap part already uh, as we move along. That he says, Elijah, take rest physically. He ministers to Elijah as a whole person, not just one slice of his life, but as a total person. And verse 11 tells us that God says to Elijah, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, I'm the only one left. And they seek my life to take it away. Let, let me give you an important detail right here that's going to kind of lead us into the bulk of what we're going to say this morning. Elijah is at a place called Mount Horeb, the Mount of God. The other name for that mountain is Mount Sinai. 
Mount, same mountain. Mount Sinai, if you remember, is where God visited that mountain in the days of Moses. And God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. And God made a covenant with the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. And here, when God descended on Mount Sinai with Moses, don't, if you remember, God descended upon that mountain with thunder and earthquakes. Elijah would have known those stories. Back then, during the Exodus, God was in the fire. God was in the thunder. God was in the earthquake, all on this very same mountain. However, now for Elijah, the Lord is not in those things. Instead, he's in the still, small, low whisper that Elijah heard after those things. Here's the implication of this for your life. The voice of God in our lives does not always come in ways that we expect, but that does not mean that God is not speaking. Just because God is not working in your life in the way you expected him to work, that does not mean that he's not at work. You see, God had a plan. It's just that Elijah didn't know what the plan was. And so God tells him the plan in verse 15. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Remember when Elijah said, I'm the only one left? God says, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. You see, God was working in the life of a pagan king that Elijah had never met, that Elijah did not know, and he's going to bring judgment on Ahab, on Jezebel, through that pagan king. Furthermore, God says, Elijah, you're not alone. I've got 7,000 followers who are dedicated to me, and Elijah, you're not the only one who's walking through this. Elijah had no idea that they existed. So then, looking at what happens, what can we learn about God's counsel to Elijah as he lived life in the valley? Because it's the same counsel that we need to hear from God about when we walk through the valley, when we deal, when godly people get depressed, what do we do? Four quick things I want to give you. First is this. Rely on God's wisdom instead of your own understanding. You see, Elijah was frustrated with God. And I find it interesting, an important thing to note is that God did not zap Elijah dead for his frustration. Look, God's big enough to handle your questions. God's big enough to handle your concerns. But Elijah had put God into a box. 
Elijah had expected that God would only work in one way. Consequently, Elijah thinks that God has let him down, but God has not let Elijah down. What has let Elijah down is his own limited view of God and how God works and how God will work in his life, in his situation. As you live life in the valley, you must make a conscience daily decision to defer to the wisdom of God instead of your own understanding. Let me frame it for you this way. Are you able to right now at this season of your life, can you look back at the past of your life and can you see a season that you've come through in which you thought God was absent? But now that some distance has occurred, now that you've got a little bit more perspective, you can see that God wasn't, even though you thought at that time you thought that he was absent, you now see that he was not absent, that he was at work. If already from your limited perspective, you can look back and see a purpose for some of the pain and some of the struggle in your, in your life, don't you think that, that given enough time and perspective, you'll be able to look back and see a purpose for all the pain and all the struggle in your life? You see, when we're talking about relying on God's wisdom instead of your own understanding, it really boils down to this. Living life in the valley requires faith that God knows what he's doing even when you can't figure him out. And when you begin to trust and you say, I don't know what I'm doing, that's a good spot to be in. Because it means you can then rely upon God and have faith that that He knows what He's doing. As you find yourself in the valley, rely on God's wisdom instead of your own. Second is this. If you're in the valley today or if you think you may be in it soon, which they say that you're in one of three spots, you're either in the valley, you've just come out of it, or you're about to go through it. So when you find yourself in that valley, secondly, receive the love and grace that God has for you. I don't want you to miss what's happening in Elijah's story because it speaks, well, let's just let it speak. In verse 11, God tells Elijah, come out of the cave. Elijah does not come out of the cave until verse 13. What happens between the time God calls him to come out of the cave and the time that Elijah comes out of the cave? I'll tell you what happens. A tornado and an earthquake broke the mountain into pieces. Now, I'm not that smart, but I have about got it figured out that if the wind and if the earthquake, if the fire, if that could tear the mountain into pieces, don't you think it could have torn Elijah into pieces? 
But God, don't miss this, God keeps Elijah in the mountain so that the mountain absorbs the intensity of the tornado, the fire, and the earthquake. And when Elijah comes out, all he experiences is, uh, of God is a still, small, gentle voice. You see, in Scripture, and I believe in this text, the tornado, the earthquake, the fire, they are symbols to us of God's judgment. Elijah was hidden in the cleft of that mountain. He was hidden in a cave in that mountain so that the mountain absorbed the things that they did not touch Elijah. The mountain absorbed the judgment and Elijah received grace. And in this, God was giving Elijah a picture of something that we see more clearly. Watch, watch this. Elijah shows up again in the New Testament. In the New Testament, there's another mountain that Elijah's standing on. And guess who he's standing on that mountain with? A man by the name of Moses. <clears throat> Moses is a man who had the exact same experience as Elijah. Moses was on a mountain, and God said, Moses, my glory is coming by, and you can't stand it. I'm going to hide you in the cleft of a rock while my glory passes by. Before Jesus died... The disciples saw Jesus on that mountain in all of his glory, standing between Moses and Elijah, yet this time the glory did not kill them. Jesus was the rock. Jesus was the mountain of grace and love into which these prophets of the Old Testament were hidden from God's judgment. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah saw in person the rock that had hidden them in the Old Testament. And what Elijah and what Moses got to see in a shadow, we get to see with substance. What they saw with great mystery, we see with great clarity on the cross. Jesus took the tornado on the cross. Jesus took the earthquake. <clears throat> Jesus took the fire of God's wrath so that we could hear the gentle, small voice of the Holy Spirit speaking love and blessing over our lives. It's grace. It's the love of God. And here's the implication for valley living. You see, whenever God doesn't do what I think He should do, whenever life does not go how I thought it would go, I don't have to doubt the goodness of God in my life. I don't have to doubt His control in my situation. You see, at the cross, God's love was forever demonstrated for us. Therefore, I have no need to doubt His goodness toward me now. If God loved me when I was His enemy, He certainly loves me. While I am his friend. When Jesus endured Gethsemane, when Jesus was on that cross alone, he was forsaken by everyone around him, even his father. Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken by everyone so that I would never have to be forsaken by God. 
My situation may cause me to feel like everything is out of control, but it's not. Think about this. There has never been a time when it looked like God was more out of control than when his son was killed by wicked men, yet there was never a time when God was actually more in control, working our salvation for our good and his glory. And if an all-powerful God was fully in charge at the cross, I can rest in his love and his grace for me today, knowing that he's in charge of my life, even when he doesn't do the things that I expect him to do. And so as I find myself in a valley, my task is to receive the love and the grace that he has for me. Third is this. Replace the lies you have believed with truth. Replace lies with truth. Something interesting happens. God speaks to Elijah twice. Both times he asks the question, Elijah, why are you here? Elijah, why are you feeling this way? Elijah responded with truth and error. Elijah said, I've been zealous for you. It's true. Elijah said, the, the Israelites have rejected you. They, they've done away with your statutes. True. The enemy has killed your prophets. That's true. Then Elijah said, I'm the only one left. That's false. God had 7,000 faithful followers that Elijah didn't know about, and God's about to raise up another prophet named Elisha who's going to have double the, the portion, double the power that Elijah had. Discouragement, despair, depression often work this way. There are a few things that are true, but then we begin to believe some things that are not true. Some of you may believe, and whether you're sitting in this room or watching us online today, you may have believed it's all lost. I'm here to tell you this morning, the cross says otherwise. That's false. You, you, you may be thinking it's useless. My family will never change. I'm here to tell you this morning, <clears throat> that's false. It's never going to get any better. That is false. There's no one who cares about me. That is false. Look at, listen, when the voices of despair, and they will speak, and they will speak loudly, but when they begin to speak into your life, we must allow the truth of the gospel to speak louder into our lives. For you see, the cross tells me I'll never be alone. The resurrection tells me the future is not done. But think of it this way. <clears throat> when depression and sadness and despair speak into your life, speak 
to them. Tell your despair. Tell your depression. Its days are numbered. And even if it should last until your dying breath, it will not follow you into eternity. But instead, it will be vanquished for all eternity while you escape to enjoy everlasting joy in the Father's presence where there is fullness of joy and at whose right hand are pleasures forevermore. In every cross of pain and suffering you experience in life, God works the miracle of the resurrection. Do not believe the lies the enemy speaks to you. Instead, allow the gospel to speak louder, to drown out the lies of the enemy. And number four, return to the work God has given you. Elijah has this experience, he has this moment, these series of moments in which he legitimately is in despair and God does not chide him for, getting to dis- for, for being in despair. But God does tell him to return to the work. Verse 15, the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and do what prophets do. <laughs> he said, Elijah, let's get back to business. Give the word of God. Anoint the rulers, etc. Get back to the work to which I have called you. For you, whatever you should be doing, no matter how despondent you feel doing it, I want to encourage you this morning to get back to doing whatever it is that God has called you to do. Get back to being the consistent and godly parent that God's called you to be. Get back to being the faithful husband or faithful wife that God has called you to be. Get back to being a witness to the gospel to your neighbors and your friends. Get back to being a God-honoring, gospel-demonstrating boss or employee or student at school. Be steadfast. Be immovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in your Lord, your labor is not in vain. God is working always, and He calls us to return to that work. So take a look. Again, those four things. How should we live in the valley? We rely on God's wisdom instead of our own understanding. We recognize the love and grace that God has for us. We replace the lies the enemy has fed us with truth from God. We return to the work God's given you. I want to ask you this morning, which one of those four, which combination of the four? It may be one, it may be all four, but which one of those Do you need to place into practice in your life as you walk through this valley? You say, Pastor, you don't understand how deep the pit is in which I stand. And you're right, I don't. But I do know this. I know that there is no pit so deep that the grace of God is not deeper still. I know there is no pit so deep 
that the love of God is not deeper still. The only thing that can overcome a deep well of despair is an even deeper well of God's grace. And my challenge to you this morning is simply to throw yourself into the well of God's grace. That doesn't mean that every day is perfect. In fact, I would venture to say that we will have struggles on the days that end in why. But when we go through those valleys, we find that God is with us. The deepest valley of all that can be thought of is the valley of death. And when King David wrote Psalm 23, he did not say that valley would not exist. And he did not say that we would not go through it. But he did say that we would not go through it alone. And if God will not permit us to go through the deepest of valleys of death on this earth alone, he will not allow us to go through any valley alone. The cross and the resurrection show you that the Lord's arm is not shortened, that it cannot save. It can, and it can today. If you are here today, if you're listening to us today, and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, if you will call out to him today, he will become your Savior. That does not mean that he will cause all of your problems to go away. And if anybody stands behind a pulpit and tells you otherwise with fruity hair and white teeth and selling books, they're a liar. But you come to Jesus today and you will find that life doesn't all of a sudden become pain-free. But your life does become filled with the presence of God. And that enables you to weather the deepest valleys that this earth can throw your way. As a teenager many years, a few years ago, as a teenager, I had a cousin who was just like a brother to me. He was in a car accident and, and died. And he was, I think, 18 years old at the time. My grandmother, who lived down the bottom of the hill from me in Brockman Hill, Arkansas, she had lost her, my grandfather, husband a couple years before that, and we had to tell her her grandson was dead. As we went to her house that early morning and sat down in her living room, I was the baby grandchild. I was the favorite, which is no surprise to anybody. And so I was there with my family as they told her, and when they told her, she began to sing. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything we have to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we don't carry everything to God in prayer. Will you carry all that you have to God in prayer? 
Would you bow your head right where you are? We're just going to take a couple of moments to allow ourselves to respond right where we are. I'm not going to ask you to walk down an aisle. I'm not going to ask you to, to raise your hand. I'm not going to ask you to do any of that. But if you're here today and you don't have a relationship with this Jesus, I want you to know he's ready to have a relationship with you. All you have to do is call out to him. If you'll call out to him in prayer, my Bible teaches me he'll save you by his grace. Maybe you have a relationship with his Savior, but you find yourself in a valley. But you think about what, what we've talked about this morning. Which of these four things that Elijah did do you need to do in your life? And in this next 30 seconds where we're silent and we're just here before God, make your commitment to God today for salvation or for Him to come into your life to help you live in the valley. Father, as we place ourselves before you in this time of commitment, I don't know where anyone in this room is in their journey with you other than myself. I don't know who, who here is in a valley. I don't know who's coming out of a valley. I don't know who's about to go into one this week. But I know that you're already there in that valley. You're with us on the mountaintop. You're with us in the valley and everywhere in between. Your grace is sufficient for the deepest valley that we experience. Father, there's coming a day when valleys will be no more. There's coming a day when you will with your hand wipe away every tear from our eye. There's coming a day when COVID will no longer exist, we'll no longer see sickness and death. There'll be no need for a hospital. Funeral homes will cease to exist. Death will be no more. But until we get to that day, we have to live life. And how thankful I am today that I don't have to live it alone, that you are with me, and you've promised to be with all those who would make you their Lord and Savior. So I pray today, if there's someone here that has yet to make that choice, that today would be the day they call out to you, confessing their sins, repenting of them, and trusting in your work. And Father, for those of us who have done that, and we find ourselves going through those valleys, I pray that we would rest in your grace and love for us. That we 
would rely on your wisdom, that you would teach us that we don't have to figure it all out, that you've got it figured. That's your job. And our job's to trust in a good God. Lord, that you would help us to replace those lies that the enemy would feed us with the truth of the gospel, that you are for us. And if you're for us, who can be against us? And Father, help us to return to the work that you've called us to do. In the good, holy, precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.